Well, good morning again. If you were to open your Bible to the very first page, past the table of contents to Genesis 1, you would find there the story of the beginning of creation, particularly the story of a God who only has to speak to create the world that we inhabit, to place that world on its axis and spin it into existence. So from the very beginning of scripture, you get, you get one message very clearly that that is, we have a God, like Paul says in Romans 4, who gives life to the dead. We'll talk about that next week and calls into being things that were not. Calls into being things that were not. Will you stop and just sit with that for a second? And that is a profound thought. Like that we have a God who's capable of creating a new world out of nothing. We have a God who's capable of calling into being things that were not only a moment before. I mean, it's so profound. It's so important to the gospel story that if God is not capable of that, then you shouldn't be here. It would be foolishness to be here. The gospel as foolishness, that's something we've heard for a long time. The ancients would have thought this idea was really foolish, the God capable of new creation. Because in their mind, everything is cyclical. Okay, the whole world is just cyclical. So there's seasons of plenty, there's seasons of little. There's seasons of abundance, there's seasons of drought and famine. There's seasons of rain and drought and rain and drought. So there's nothing new under the sun. You've heard that before. That, that even makes its way into the Bible. And there's nothing new under the sun. And I think the gospel is still foolish, but for maybe a different reason. Charles Taylor, he wrote The Secular Age, which is maybe the definitive book on how people think today. He says that most, most people today are governed by the myth of progress. He says the myth of progress. That is that we think about the world as this inevitably progressing system that is constantly getting better. So things like poverty, inequality, disease, and sickness, that eventually all those things will be eliminated because we're making great progress in science and technology and communication. So things are just going to inevitably get better. Which is why school shootings destroy our sense of the world. It's not just that school shootings terrify us for the safety of our kids, and I'll own that. I've got to send my oldest to school in about a year's time, and I don't know how I'm going to do it. You know, as part of this larger debate about gun control, and you saw the marches yesterday, I saw this story online the other day that bulletproof backpacks are sold out and on back order across the country. Can you believe bulletproof backpacks are even a thing? Like that those two words go together, bulletproof backpacks? Can you believe that? So it's not just the, the fear though that we feel for the kids and grandkids that we're sending off to school. I think school shootings shake us so bad because they prove that things are not getting better. You know, that a world without God is not marching off onward to some utopian ideal, some better place. It's just not happening. And we don't have a narrative to make sense of that except the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
That that is the only narrative that makes any sense of it. And this is maybe the fundamental and maybe the first commitment of the gospel, okay? That if something new is going to happen, it will not happen from within this world, but from outside this world. Let me say that a little bit differently. That if a new world is going to break into this world, that world can only come from a power that is beyond this world and not limited by this world. And the only power like that that we ever get to see is the power that is on display in Genesis 1 at creation and then again at the cross of Jesus Christ. Which is to say that the cross of Jesus is a Genesis 1 moment. Let me try to make sense of that for you. This is what Paul has to say about that in Galatians 6. He says, May I never boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything. What counts is new creation. If you can just leave that up there for a few minutes, I want, to, I want to point your attention to three words here to try to make sense of this passage. The first word I want to draw your attention to is the second one that's underlined, it's world. The, the word there is cosmos, it's the word we get cosmic from. And the idea here is, is Paul's describing the world that you see around you, so trees, plants, animals, humans. But he's also describing, it's a little bit bigger than that, as cosmic implies. He's also describing the world you can't see. So the invisible fibers that hold this world together. So the worldview, the ideals, the culture, the values of this world that's around us, that's, that's holding what we see together. That's what he's describing when he says cosmos. So he says there is this old world, this old cosmos, but now there is a new world. World, And that's the last term I want to point your attention to. Now there's new creation. So when I say that, new creation, it reminds you of what? Genesis 1. It reminds you of Genesis 1, that there is this old world, but now there is a new world breaking in on the scene. A new creation by God himself, the only one capable of creation, that is being spun on its axis and colliding with the current world. Okay, if this new world was just an improvement over the current world, we would not need creation. We would need remodeling. You follow? We don't get remodeling. We don't get enhancement. We get new creation. And so then the question is, when does this happen? And that's that first word that's underlined. It happens at the cross of Jesus Christ. So there are definite echoes of Genesis 1 creation at the cross of Jesus but you can only accept the possibility that God created a new world at the cross of Jesus if you think God is capable of that sort of thing. If God is capable of new world making. And if you can accept that God is capable of that, all right, then what is really challenging for this new story compared to Genesis 1 is that there God made out of nothingness and here God makes in the midst of an existing world. So it's not just him playing with Play-Doh and making something brand new. It is an invasion of a new world into an existing one. 
Okay, that's kind of theoretical. Let's try to make sense of that. Uh, the best uh, example of this I can come up with comes also from the Greeks. I used Hercules a couple weeks ago. This is from Plato. It's called the Allegory of the Cave. Have y'all heard the Allegory of the Cave before? You probably have. This is how it goes. I, I think the Greeks figured a lot of stuff out because they didn't have phones, so they just sat around and thought about stuff a lot. And um, so they were like bored, and so they figured out the world, basically. Um, instead of just posting on Facebook. So anyway, so they, here's, here's what they came up with, Plato. He said, the world is like a cave, and deep in the dark recesses of this cave, you've got this group of people who are chained to each other, chained up in the cave, and they're just facing the, the back of the cave, the walls of the cave. Somebody behind them starts a fire in a little fire pit, and then suddenly that fire is projecting on the wall in front of them shadows. So anytime something passes between the fire and that wall, it casts a shadow in front of them, and, and they begin to think that the shadows they're seeing are, are the whole world. And they're, they're all of reality. They're so convinced that what they're seeing is, is the whole of the world that they begin to name those shadows. They, they have ideas about those shadows, values that are related to those shadows deep down in the darkness of the cave. And what you and I know is if they were to just get out of that cave and stand in the sunlight and the warmth, I mean, they would be overcome by the expanse and wonder of this whole other world that is right beside them as close as the entry to that cave, but they can't see it. So they would need to get out of that cave, somebody from outside of the cave to come down into it, bust the locks and then lead them outside. That's what they would need. Okay. Or like Paul says in Colossians, thinking about Jesus, he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness, gives it a little, little more meaning and brought us into the kingdom of the son he loves in whom we trust in whom we have redemption. Sorry, the forgiveness of sins. Okay. The Bible's really clear on this. It's something we don't think about a lot, but the Bible is very consistent on this, that there are two worlds out there, two worlds. Sometimes they're called two kingdoms. There is a world of sin and death. And that world is much like the darkness of that cave where everybody sits around and they kind of pat themselves on the back because they have named the things they see on the wall so well, right? Even though those things have no connection with reality or if any connection, only a distant connection as a shadow is distantly connected to the thing that casts that shadow. So they're trapped down there in this darkness. They don't have any concept of this world that is greater and bigger, but outside that cave is this world, God's kingdom, which is so much more expansive and beautiful and warm and full of sunlight. Okay, that's metaphorical language. You've got sunlight versus the darkness of a cave. Okay, that metaphor only goes so far. So let's look at how Paul describes these two world, wor worlds. Sorry. This is in Romans 5. Romans 5 and 6 is probably the best description we get. We're going to jump in mid-argument here. It's going to be confusing. I'll try to make sense of it after. This is Romans 5, 15, if you're following along. But the gift, this is the gift of Jesus Christ, is not like the trespass, that is, of Adam, the first who sinned not long after Genesis 1. For if the many died by the trespass of the one man, Adam... How much more did God's grace and the gift that came by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, overflow to the many? Nor can the gift of God be compared with the result of one man's sin. The judgment followed one sin and brought condemnation, but the gift followed 
sorry, many trespasses and brought justification. For if by the trespass of the one man, death reigned through that one man, how much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and of the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ? Consequently, just as one trespass resulted in condemnation for all people, so also one righteous act resulted in justification and life for all people. For just as through the disobedience of the one man, the many were made sinners, so also through the obedience of the one man, the many will be made righteous. The law was brought in so that the trespass might increase, but where sin increased, grace increased all the more, so that just as sin reigned in death, so also grace might reign through righteousness to bring eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So you're like, whoa, that was confusing. All right. I tried to chart this out. I borrowed this from someone and made a lot of sense to me. And when I saw this, like sometimes when you're preparing for a sermon, you're studying the word of God, you're convicted. You may be drawn to repentance. Sometimes you're just thankful. You're overcome with gratitude. And sometimes you're drawn to worship, like right there in the study. You hear Brecian singing next to you and you just sing along with him, right? Like that's what happens in my office all the time. And that's what happened when I saw this chart, right? I read this passage and then I saw this and I was drawn to worship God because what Paul is describing here is not an improvement over the existing world. He's describing two very different worlds, verse by verse. You've got one world that's marked by judgment from the one man's sin leading to condemnation for all. In this new world, you have the gift from the one man, Jesus Christ, covering many sins leading to justification for all. In this one world, you've got Adam's trespass or sin allowing death to reign. In this other world, you've got Christ's grace and righteousness allowing us to reign in life. You follow down, you see how those two worlds differ side by side by side. What's Paul saying here? Here's, here's what I think he's saying. First, he's saying that sin and death are great powers. We talked about this a few week, weeks ago. They are not just mistakes that we make. They are great powers keeping us in bondage. They are powers creating a world that we are captive to and don't even realize we're in. We just see the things projected on the wall. We hear what our neighbors are naming those things and we just go right along with them. So young people, like, listen, this is why things are not all relative. You know, just because somebody says something's okay doesn't make it okay. You know, that's just like you looking at the shadow on the wall and thinking something is a giraffe when actually it's somebody behind you just going like this, right? You know, things are not all relative. Just because somebody says something is one thing doesn't mean it's that thing. And this is why Facebook is so dangerous. I know I took one shot, I'm gonna take another. Like I know that some of you are using Facebook to spread the gospel message, to keep up with friends. It's a pastoral tool. I get that, praise God for that. But a lot of times I think Facebook is just a bunch of people in the cave describing what they see on the wall, right? And it has no connection at all with reality. The new world that God is spinning into motion that he's inviting us into. Listen, as an example of this, Generation Z. So this is kids under 18. We heard a study about this in our recent staff meeting. This was the thing that caught my attention most. Kids in Generation Z think that morally it is worse to not recycle than it is to look at pornography. Is Morally it's it's worse to not recycle than it is to look at pornography. Why? Because they would say pornography is a victimless crime. Right. If you think pornography is a victimless crime, 
you're buying the lies around the campfire in the cave, right? You are, you are overlooking the way it abuses young women, the destruction it causes in families, the way it warps your own mind so that you're unable to treat people like they deserve. It's just like you're sitting there in the cave, believing your buddy sitting next to you, man, this isn't bad. Let's look at this, right? Paul's saying that sin and death are these great powers, but the grace and righteousness of God are greater powers still. Okay, just like sin isn't making bad decisions, righteousness isn't making good decisions. Righteousness is the power of God that is unleashed at the cross of Jesus Christ that overwhelms us. The power of God that comes from the cross, enters the cave, busts us out and sets us in this new world that is expansive and beautiful and full of life. That's the grace and righteousness of God. And it is unleashed at the cross of Jesus Christ. So how do you get to that world? How do you get there? Um, I love the musical Les Miserables, and um, I'll, I haven't used it. I've been like holding Les Miserables for six years to like the perfect moment. I think this is it. Because once you use it, you can't use it again. And uh, <clears throat> I'm hoping that after six years, I can start using some of my old stories and y'all have forgotten them by now, but I haven't used this one yet. So the, the story is about Jean Valjean. He's a convicted criminal. He spent 19 years in prison. And he gets out and he's penniless, he has nothing, and he's wandering around looking for food and lodging. He finds himself on the doorstep of a church, and the bishop there, Bishop Muriel, takes him in. And he feeds him this feast, he treats him as an honored guest. And then everyone retires for the night, goes to bed, and Jean Valjean awakes, and he goes into the kitchen and he steals all the silver they were just eating with. So the silver plates and dishes and silverware. And he makes off into the night with that stuff. He's stolen it. And the next day, the bishop's in the garden and the authorities come in and they've got Jean Valjean in cuffs and they've got the silver in the other hand and they throw the beaten and cuffed Jean Valjean at the ground and they tell the bishop, Valjean had the audacity to tell us that you gave him this silver. And remember what the bishop says. He says, well, of course I did. He says, but Valjean, I'm very disappointed in you because you forgot to take the candlesticks as well. And he takes those candlesticks and he presses them against Valjean's chest and the authorities release him. He has this great line in the musical. I'm not gonna sing it, I'm just gonna say it. All right, he, <laughs> he presses those candlesticks against Valjean's chest and he says, by the passion and the blood. So he's talking about the cross. By the passion and the blood, God has raised you out of darkness. Raised you out of darkness. I have bought your soul for God. He says, I bought your soul for God. And that is the turning point in Valjean's life. And the language there is really helpful and maybe the imagery as well. What we experience at the cross is not only the forgiveness of our sins, which we desperately need. It's not only the forgiveness of our sins. It is that by that sacrifice, God is making a new world possible for us. You know, he is creating possibility for us where beforehand there was nothing but the chains and the darkness of that cave. He is setting us in this new and vast and beautiful world. And it happens right at that moment by the passion and the blood. Paul says it like this in Romans 6, 22. Now you have been set free from sin 
and have become slaves of God. And the benefit you reap leads to holiness and the result is eternal life. The message of scripture is that we need somebody to not only forgive us, we need somebody to liberate us. And the only one capable of liberating us from this world is someone from outside that world, more powerful than this world, who decides to enter it and bring us out. And we're not talking about heaven, some distant um, eternal homeland that we experience after we die. Heaven is not mentioned anywhere in these passages from Paul. Paul is talking about a new world that you can reside in right now. The world of God's grace and righteousness that exists as close by as the cave is to the world outside it. Enveloping that darkness. You can live in that world. Uh, this is a, a picture I'll share with you. This is from a guy named Daniel Berrigan. That's the guy in cuffs there. Daniel Berrigan was a Jesuit priest, kind of famous for protesting. And he's in cuffs here because he was arrested for a protest where he did some things I probably wouldn't recommend doing. He's kind of a controversial figure. What nobody would debate, though, was that Daniel Berrigan loved Jesus, loved Jesus. As a Jesuit priest, he spent most of his time contemplating Jesus, and not only Jesus, but the cross of Jesus specifically. That's, that's what they do is they focus on the cross of Jesus Christ. So this is this moment when Daniel Berrigan is being arrested. And as you look at this picture, you're immediately drawn to Berrigan who's smiling, but I'd, I'd call you to look at the other two guys who do not look happy to be there. Right, and I, I sympathize with them. In some ways I feel like them. You know, their job's hard. And they're trying as hard as they can to make the world a better place. It's a thankless job. You know, they probably didn't get a bonus after this picture was taken and put in the newspapers, right? It is a thankless gig. And I get that. They're, they're working as hard as they can to make the world better. But I can't help but wonder when looking at this picture, who in the picture is really free? You're like, who in this picture is free? I believe it is possible to reside firmly and squarely in the grace and righteousness of God, even as death and darkness clouds in around you, even as those forces are pressing in beside you. I think, I believe it is possible to reside in that grace and smile. I show you this picture of Daniel Berrigan because it's a picture I have. What I don't have are the pictures of all those faces of Highlanders that I've seen when they're in the hospital, right? And they're dying and they're just smiling. It's not because they know what's coming next. It's because of what they're experiencing right then, right? Like somehow God's grace and righteousness are right here in this hospital room, despite the evidence all around and they know it, and so they can smile. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God in Christ Jesus is eternal life. Right? The gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. It is a wonderful and amazing gift. It is another world that you're invited to reside in. And I want to extend Paul's invitation, the invitation of Jesus Christ himself to you this morning. If you are not living in that world and would like to, we'd love to talk to you today about baptism. 
We'd love to see your sins washed away. We'd love to see you pulled from that darkness and placed in his amazing and beautiful light. I'll be down front if you'd like to talk with me about that. We've also got shepherds in the back who'd love to pray with you. Will you stand as we sing? The splendor of a king Clothed in majesty Let all the earth rejoice All the earth rejoice